0: Inari has been able to design the chocolate company of the future from zero, You know, baked in with our ideals and our values. We've been able to program in true stewardship from day one.
1: I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do The Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Today, I am talking with Janet Liriano. I met her through a mutual friend and lucky for me, she's just moved to LA. She is the only woman of color to raise a million dollars of venture money twice. She's the co founder and CEO of Inaru, which is a solutions driven brand that is reimagining the cocoa supply chain through profit sharing. This woman led company is making the production and distribution of cocoa fairer and more sustainable through traceability. Inaru partners with women run farms, co ops, and suppliers across the Dominican Republic, where Janet is from. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for being
0: here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to start at the
1: very beginning of this most recent chapter, which is the genesis of Inaru. How did it start, and why? The why.
0: Uh, it's like one of those great big questions. But you know, I think how right. uh, how Inaru started. Sure. It's kind of like a seed, you know. And now we're now we're kind of seeing the first sprout. But I think the seed was planted for this business or the desire for it from a very young age. My father has a cocoa farm in the Dominican Republic, and my mother's father, my grandfather on my mother's side, was a farmhand. And my sister and I were born and raised in Queens, New York, and we always heard about the abundance of the Dominican Republic—not just the Dominican Republic, really most of the global South in these producing regions—and how, you know, if innovative minds would go back and invest in the greatness that's there, that a lot could happen. So, from a very young age, we heard about my dad, like getting mangoes and eating them under a tree and making chocolate with his aunts and uncles and as adults and entrepreneurs who at the time were working in biopharma and venture capital, we are really curious about what can we do with all of this richness that isn't really being cultivated for its highest good. So about four years ago, my sister, who was managing a lot of the cocoa sales and operations on my father's farm, um, she, you know, went to spend about a month with him to really understand what was going on with the amount of income he was making off of this farm. He was making about 50% less than what he should have been making off of the price of cocoa as it's traded, you know, a spot, you know, the the typical price per ton. And she got really curious as to why this was a consistent issue. And, um, you know, spent about a month there really seeing what was going on on the farm, interviewing different farmers, and realized fairly quickly that, a lot of the value of cocoa is realized offshore. In the case of the Dominican Republic, 98% of cocoa is exported to be processed into fine chocolate and other great confections. And all of that value remains offshore. And that there's all this compression in the country for farmers to produce the highest volume of cacao with very little pay and very little security since the margin is really made offshore. And that, made us really, that made me really excited and curious like, huh, we have this high value raw material literally sitting in our ancestral backyard. And, you know, how do we make the value chain more empathetic and more efficient? She kind of came to me with that challenge and I was like, you know what, let's dive in. Let's do the thing. That's a very long way to answer, like, how did it begin? It it kind of began before we were born in some ways, which is really my parents' intent to, you know, raise children with opportunity who would hopefully look back on where they came from and bring some of that value
1: back. What I love so much about the sort of blueprint and foundation of your company is that it ticks so many boxes for me, which is one, it, it comes from like an ancestral heritage. It comes from a reclamation of, you know, like honestly like human rights to like figure out how to make farming more sustainable for humanity. It comes from like two women of color owning a business and you're also when you told me about your business model i just you know you sent me a bunch of materials i was so in awe of the approach i would love you to walk us through because it also speaks to like deeply feminine leadership and ancestral wisdom and i'd love you to sort of share Mm -hmm. that with us of like how you started to approach the business model and how you built it because i just think your your company's doing so many interesting things that shouldn't be radical, but are at this current stage.
0: Thank you. Um, I really appreciate that. Yes, I'm happy to talk through, you know, how, how did we create a new model of doing business? We have to say Inaru appears to be a chocolate company, but it's really a different way of thinking about ethical agriculture. Those are kind of like the founding principles of what we do. How do we make the cultivation of food really positive for the planet the people that produce it, and everybody that touches this and then ultimately consumes it. Because food is, you know, in my opinion, one of the most sacred things. It becomes a part of ourselves. It, you know, literally nurtures us from within. And the quality of that food is really affected by all of the energetics that go into it, whether it's, you know, an exploited farmer or exploited swells, At the end of the day, all of that energy will materialize one way or another. So when you we were looking at the cocoa supply chain and really the history of the Dominican Republic, which some people may know and some people may not know, is the first country in the new world post-contact. So Christopher Columbus and his lost seafarers landed on the island of Hispaniola. And so much of the modern world that we live in today is actually a result of a lot of beta tests of how commodities trading, value exchange happens between countries in the global south and and the larger global economy. So the DR as a country in and of itself has some really long built-in kind of historical patterns of trade that had purpose and utility maybe in 1492. But when we look at those patterns now in 2023, we see how they're not sustainable and compatible to life. So that's kind of at the macro. But to zoom in down on, you know, what's the state of affairs in cocoa today versus what we're doing, as I mentioned earlier, most of the cocoa is exported. What's not accounted for is the invisible supply chain partners that move that cocoa. So many people have this idea that an exporter or a chocolate brand buys the beans from a farmer. That's not what happens. What happens is a brand pays a broker or a trader or an intermediary and then ultimately an exporter in the country, the total amount that they wanna pay for the cocoa that they wanna buy. And then that person, that group pays an intermediary that knows maybe a hundred farmers. And then that guy pays another intermediary who maybe knows another 500 set of farmers. All of these farmers, most of the time have no idea where their cocoa is going and are paid in this very informal dude with the truck format and it's millions and millions of dollars that are traded in a harvest season and ultimately in the global economy, billions of dollars that are traded in this informal supply chain where all of these logistics partners are not compensated for the important work of collecting, tracing and transporting this cacao to the ultimate buyer. So what happens there and in terms of the feminine approach towards solving a problem, we really wanted to understand why are the incentives the way that they are and what is causing this farmer loss of value and, and, and what what is the root cause for this exploitation? And what we determined was, well, like most of the new world, we're relying on unpaid labor, and in this case, supply chain. So when we saw that, we thought, oh, this is a really interesting opportunity Instead of viewing the intermediary like a bad guy antagonist who's taking about $1,000 per ton from the farmer, what if we looked at them like really valued logistics partners that are not being accounted for? And what if we contracted them, engaged them, partnered with them to be our supply chain partners, and pay them for that later, and have them be you know, a quality assurance and a pay assurance partner instead of an antagonist in ensuring the farmer pay? So in our model we saw an opportunity instead of seeing these intermediary partners as antagonists to really redignify their work and put a value on it as supply chain partners and really and in, in partnering with them we were able to onboard a much larger network of farmers and leverage the fact that they know the, they know the map of the DR as it relates to cocoa harvesting better than anybody else really empowered them by dignifying their work and created an incentive to ensure direct farmer pay. So it's, it's a small and interesting thing. Of course the cocoa has to go from the farm to the buyer and someone needs to move all of that cocoa and someone needs to track and do all the paperwork for that cocoa. And ideally those people get paid. And in the current reality for most of commodities and food trades, that's not what's happening. Those intermediaries are basically supposed to figure it out with the total price of the materials that they're harvesting. So, naturally, they're going to take a percentage. And for Inari, we thought, okay, here's a really interesting way for us to innovate the business model. A key thing there, though, in order for us to be able to pay these individuals is bringing the value back onshore. So, as I mentioned earlier, we export about 200,000 metric tons of cocoa a year on average in the Dominican Republic. That has about, like, an aggregate value of maybe 220 million, depending on the price of cocoa. It then becomes... Thirteen billion dollars worth of value once it's processed in Europe. So that same tonnage, which is largely organic cacao, fine flavor cacao, gets on a boat, transfers itself across the sea, which has an environmental impact as well, and then is made into butter, paste, powder, and these much more stable semi-finished and finished goods, and you know has now become a billion-dollar product. And in our mind, we thought, well, in order to properly pay the creators of this raw material, we need to bring that value back on shore. So becomes about $12 billion worth of value in Europe. So in Inari's construct we thought in order to properly compensate folks, we need to bring that brand value and that finished product value into the country of origin. There's obviously tons of environmental impact that we get to improve by not transporting thousands of tons of cocoa. But beyond that, the value is now in the country of origin. And one of the most novel things that we do is that we profit share with all of our farmers and our supply chain partners. So if you think about the margin difference between $3,000 a metric ton and $100,000 a metric ton, which is about the aggregate value of trading chocolate bars, a 5% profit share off of $100,000 is very different than a profit share off of $3,000 for a farmer. So by really looking at where is value being created and unnaturally hoarded and how do we redirect that energy, I think we've come up to, we've created a very logical and familiar business model that we see in France when it comes to vineyards and wine production. So it's applying that same very well-known principle of craft and artistry and provenance that we see with European agricultural goods to the Global South, and in this case, the Dominican Republic.
1: It's so simple right the the solutions are so simple we have everything we need it just takes one person to sort of look at the holes or why does this work this way and reevaluate it to create what is like an, an elegant simple solution to a problem we have which is like you're not necessarily like like you are reinventing the wheel but it still fits within the confines of uh like an industry we understand like it's it's not like a different language you're just basically expanding the current language we both speak and so i think that's what's so cool about it so so elegant but it's just you're not i don't think it's like that hard to make happen i guess
0: yeah i think that you know to your point it's it's redefining what we think luxury is and you can create luxury because i think what many brands, um, in the West or even in the East have done well is there's this pride in their craftsmanship, pride in the quality that comes from these countries. And there's this perception that's incorrect that Latin America or Africa or even Southeast Asia, that these are poor places. When in reality, those are the foundational places that provide the wealth of raw materials that then become branded goods. So in our mind, you know, to your point, we're not doing anything new. You know, the idea of a vertical supply chain is a very well-known, well-loved model that has built empires. We're just redefining who are creators of luxury, who are who are creators of value, and how do we respect that artistry and craft to mobilize those economies as well? And what we've found is that, you know, it's very surprising for folks when we say that the Dominican Republic has fine cacao and fine chocolate. You know, one of the first things we'll hear is, Oh, that comes from Switzerland or Belgium. I'm like, there's no cocoa trees in those countries. Many people don't know where food comes from, really, at the end of the day, because there's this focus on brand. So that's a big goal for the business is to re-educate the consumer on what feeds the 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 sense of premium that we all enjoy, and where's the root of that value, and in ensuring that those premiums you pay actually take care of those roots and don't get stuck. <laughs> When it comes to educating your audience, your
1: consumer, what are the best tactics you have found to do that?
0: I think it depends on who we are considering as our consumer. So, you know, there's like maybe three different main stakeholders we deal with. There's the cocoa buyer for the brand. There's, there's you and me, the folks in the market who are like buying chocolate regularly. And, you know, the traders in between. And I think that the narrative For each of them is somewhat similar but different as it relates to a chocolate brand the biggest value add you know when i make the comparison between wine and vineyards it becomes very clear to people all of a sudden you know why does it make sense to do processing in the dominican republic why does it make sense to have a vertical supply chain in the country that produces the largest amount of, of organic cacao like suddenly it becomes very clear to the chocolate brand that there's value in making these sorts of investments and that there's value in compensating people appropriately so that they can deliver the traceability the quality assurance you know i'm not sure if you guys are familiar but there was a recent report that you know the majority of popular brands in the states for dark chocolate have dangerous levels of cadmium and lead inari chocolate doesn't have traceable or detectable levels of cadmium and lead and this is for multiple reasons we soil test across our farms we only source from organic farms we also invest in regenerative agriculture. That really balances the soil floor because we have that level of stewardship we know that there aren't dangerous metals in our cacao. that visibility is super important on quality so now the buyer is it's kind of been this defensive position where they really do need closer more direct ties to their supply because of the natural consequences of being disconnected for the consumer i think the the re-education is a bit more challenging because there's this very strong perception that premium doesn't come from places like this. And one of the things that took us a really long time to figure out is what is our voice in this space? And how do we tell our story? And how do we invite people to rediscover the Dominican Republic in an inclusive way, not in an angry way? And, you know, excite them that they're closer to the source. So I think you know, how do we educate them? It's a work in progress. We just launched in the States um, literally two weeks ago, and we've seen some really positive feedback Congrats. Before. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been a journey, um, but we're, we're, we're approaching the consumer from a place of discovery, like rediscover chocolate, you know, and what it could really taste like and how it can really feel and the good it can really do. Because I think the consumer is tired of being guilted and, like, hit over the head. Uh, for wanting a piece of chocolate. So you want to make it easy to enjoy something and know that you're contributing joy with that purchase
1: Well, what you are doing well, which is how I got more curious, right? Was your packaging tells a story of the circular economy model, which for me I was like, oh, wow Like that's that's so cool. And that's, you know, I'm so curious I wanted to learn more because it was such an easy way to understand, you know, I'm someone who I I'm an activist through how I spend money. It's a big part of, I believe, our dollars speak. And so the more that we can be intentional with how we spend and who we support, the more we live in the world we wanna see. And so you putting it in the packaging is a really easy way for people to connect if their values align, if they're more of a uh, mission-driven consumer. Um, So I thought that was a really smart, clean way to get people engaged with the deeper story of what you're doing.
0: Thank you. And I think to your point, I appreciate all the great feedback on the packaging. I think to the point as it relates to like consumer education and information, you know, folks are kind of um confused and tired about what all these like stickers and labels mean, like is something really fair trade, is something really organic, like how do we know? And to your point, you know, the story that we wanted to tell on the packaging is less about here's some third party validating us, saying that we're doing the right thing. Here's how it's designed into the business to guarantee This impact that you know for a fact that the dollar you spent here, the $8 that you spent here, directly creates a 10 to 20x increase in income for these 800 farmers. Those are facts on the ground that anybody can audit that doesn't require a third party validator who shows up once a year. So I think one of the, you know, if if we were to say what's a radical challenge that NAR wants to introduce to the marketplace is to really empower the consumer that they can hold brands a lot more accountable for direct intervention and direct results is it enough to rely on a third party our answer is no it's not because these larger brands have much more resources to ensure farmer pay to ensure soil testing but if you're outsourcing responsibility that's not taking responsibility hold on no. we got we got to go
1: back one second if you're outsourcing sure. responsibility, that's not taking responsibility. I think this is such yeah. that's such an interesting like way to fr- phrase it because you're exactly right, which is like the the lack of accountability when companies get too big and they say, "Well, you know, they didn't have as much oversight." It's like to be an ethical person in this world, we have to take that level of accountability that we can't just push off for the sake of profits or we scaled too quick and we forgot. I think it's such an it's such a great intention to build a company with. I'm, I just wanted to applaud that. I had to shout it out because I was like, that's such a great Thank you. moment.
0: I really appreciate that. And that's that's one of the things, you know, when people talk about corporate responsibility and stewardship, if that's not designed in your business model, you're going to have financial incentives against taking direct responsibility because you won't see the financial return on some of these investments more quickly. So I think that's kind of one of the unique things that because Inari has been able to design the chocolate company of the future from zero you know, you know, baked in with our ideals and our values, we've been able to, you know, program in true stewardship from day one. But these larger corporations really need to, I think there's a larger challenge on are our sustainability goals compatible with our profitability and growth goals? Because sometimes we need to lose <laughs> short term benefit. And heavily invest to make radical changes in infrastructure and contracts and partners, et cetera. So you're not gonna see you're not gonna see a gain that quarter. You're gonna see a loss. But if we don't have the corporate courage to take that perceived loss, knowing that you're gonna harvest it later, you know, a kind of there to say so much of business language actually refers to farms, seed investments, yield, return, these are all farm-based languages that we've kind of forgotten. You don't get to enjoy a harvest, you know, every two days or like every quarter. That's not how nature works. There's time and effort that you have to put in to be able to guarantee your food five years from now. And how do businesses change from being organizations and operating more like healthy organisms is really the space that Inaru is trying to create a healthy debate about. If we don't operate like a living thing in a larger ecosystem, in a larger economy, eco, you know, it's alive, it's people, it's things. Um, we're going to find it's going to be very difficult to make the radical changes we want to make.
1: Yeah, to live in the world we want to live in. You're, you, you're referencing something you, you introduced me to, which is this idea of syntropy. And I have a definition with me. Um, and it's from this guy, Ernst Gotch, who also introduced me to, which I became really fascinated by. But I'm just going to read something here um is not entitled to negotiations or bargaining love is guided by the realization of being part of the ecosystem strategy to increase energy even if it means at a certain stage of development the suppression of an individual be it a weed a fruit tree or an animal the unconditional love expressed in the inherent dynamics of an ecosystem means that species that have already fulfilled their function gracefully subject themselves to be transformed by natural processes. And you had told me about this, and then I went on a deep dive on earned scotch, and I would love to talk about how you've applied this to sort of your business. I mean, you sort of just referenced it, but I wanna go a little bit deeper, because this idea that we allow nature, nature takes care of itself, and if you cultivate it the right way, everything's in balance. And so talk about a little bit how you've applied that to, to your philosophy of business
0: certainly so you know we the the model and thanks for bringing it up and this is a shout out for anybody listening or watching Ernst clutch is amazing please read all of <laughs> his amazing writings on century shout out outs he's amazing and just oh, to give the top line on our farms.
1: let's give the top line that he <laughs> took a like a desert barren like huge like amount of land in brazil and over 50 years has cultivated it back to like a deep forest and so you can watch some of the videos on online, but it's really amazing this idea of honoring the earth and figuring out how the earth works. And so it's a philosophy that can be, you know, obviously applied to farming, but as you have now applied it to a business philosophy, there's a lot of like kernels of wisdom within that process I think we can glean from. So I would, yeah,
0: I would just wanted to say that piece. Absolutely. So yeah, the top one, it's like, imagine turning a desert into a forest. You don't have to imagine because Ernst did it. It's amazing and incredible. And it was something that took 40 years, 50 years almost. And I think that's the sort of discipline that in the current design of what we call corporate capitalism, that we don't allow these long sorts of investments and transitions for a yield that you may not see. Many seeds that we plant, we don't get to eat the fruit in a lifetime. That's that's something that a business a person, ideally governing bodies understand, because that's how nature works. So to your point, you know, what, what I would like to think, I'd like to make the both claim that Inaro might be the first centropic business. Um, this is something that I've talked about with the team over in Brazil. Uh, how do you build a business that understands the space and its place and what it needs to contribute to its immediate ecosystem and has the consciousness to understand the ultimate chain reaction? So one of the things when we talked about the economics of Inaro with investors in terms of the margin potential, you know, we're talking about extremely low operating costs in the Dominican Republic and a business that can easily produce billions in revenue if we choose to scale super quickly on how much cocoa we buy and how much finished product we make. One of the things that we decided fairly early on is that the most important role that we could play is focusing not on volume but on quality. Right? So, you know, right now we're only interested in sourcing about a thousand metric tons, which is like maybe half a day of processing at a major processor in Europe. Like it's not much tonnage at all. But that thousand metric tons, done beautifully, well, healthily, creates enough financial impact for thousands and thousands of fibers in their community. And then when we scale to another 500, like so the residual impact of that of that proof case, and that's like a number that is sufficiently large that larger organizations and organisms that exist can apply our rules. If we were to want to get into the space and grow at a cancerous rate or at a disruptive rate, we would find the system would re- would resist in a really aggressive way. Because you know if our ambition outpaces the purpose of what we do, you know, we would end up being a weed like many of these businesses have sort of evolved into. So growing at the right time, at the right size, with the right outcome is a very big principle of centropic businesses in general. Like how big do I need to be to create the impact that I need? And then at that moment, do I need to continue to grow or is there a way for me to share my resources with maybe a larger player, a bigger tree, so that that can transform and create health at the scale that it's in? And I'll pause there for a second because I want to transition a bit into you know thinking about supply chains in a more profound way. When we think of the Amazons of the world or the Walmarts of the world, oftentimes these super companies, these super organisms and organizations drain tremendous amount of resources from their suppliers and they end up needing to become their own suppliers because there's not enough resource distribution back and then what that does is create single points of failures right so something gets too big to be secure and we're now seeing the natural like apoptosis and like decay and like urgent downsizing of something that's grown too large for its own utility because it you know we can't do everything alone So I I kinda wanna contrast that, like the endless growth model that exists so strongly in the West versus a more collaborative growth model that keeps the entire system alive, which is what we're trying to plant in the Dominican.
1: Well, it's like, you know, white supremacy, colonialism capitalism is about extraction right it's built upon unpaid labor and you're basically saying well what if we just like (laughs) honor people and their work let's see what happens let's let's possibly see what happens when you pay people their fair share they can cultivate at a deeper level they can take care of like themselves and others then like frankly it's just like if people are well the product is more well right it's like when you hurt people hurt people so it's like at at the core of it i think it's it's such a great Point to make because, unfortunately, based on the history of the world, we haven't really seen a company build that way, I think, and be immensely successful um, in the Western definition of success. Right? I'm not saying I, I you know, there's plenty of definitions of success, but I think what's interesting about your approach is I believe you're going to be a pioneer for a lot of other businesses because the. Um, the timing and the awareness around the way that th- things used to be, it's just like before that wasn't, there wasn't the right cultural, I guess, confluence of events for people to be in a place where they're really ready to say, okay, this isn't working, we need something else. And for you to be at like the cutting edge of saying, well, actually, here's an exact model of how to build it at the right time. I think I'm, I'm just really pumped to, to watch you grow and support you because I think you're doing something really really important at the specific juncture of time that we live in
0: oh, thank you I really appreciate that and we're working very hard to like to be a positive catalyst that can demonstrate we can change you know one thing I'd like to share is that one of our investors was a former Hershey executive which a lot of people initially didn't understand and one thing I'd love to add about that about space and time is that in order to like really build solutions just like nature does we need everyone right We have to have a restorative justice attitude towards healing unhealthy business models that cause pain, healing unhealthy dynamics and trade that cause pain. We're going to need Hershey's and Mondelez and Barry Calvin and Cargill. They are going to need a a path of transformation that that allows them to transition safely you know, we were talking about that in the Centropic Principles, right? There's billions, there's millions of people and ultimately billions that are affected by the operations of these mega food conglomerates. And, you know, Inaru's answer isn't, you know, may they all fall, that's not the point. There's many, many millions of people that are part of these organizations that are simply doing what they've been incentivized to do. So the biggest, you know, if I were to say like one of my strongest goals is how can we in our business because we touch so many different parts of it, the farmer the processing the brand the product how can we build really provable frameworks and models that these larger groups can adopt in an empowered way having seen having seen it succeed at a certain level of scale it's like we want to we want to show that this is healthy and it works so that it's easily assimilated in these larger spaces so you know i think that's one of the other thing i'd love to say to anybody listening is there are no cartoon villains in this life is, a, is something that we see at Inaru. It's just um, really misaligned incentives that brings out the worst in a system. So if you get curious about why we continue to invest in pain, the reason that happens is because we've been told that more is better. Not better is better. Not health is better. Not security is better. Not love is better. Just more. And we're all seeing that that's not really true because we have more garbage, more sickness, more pollution. Yeah, we got more of a lot of crap. <laughs> Excuse my language. So, yeah, I think there's there's something to be said for restraint.
1: No, you said something really, like, I think it's all the money, which is that a lot of times we're in these systems that bring out the worst in us. And that's, I always say, a lot of these systems, the frameworks are the disease, and the people within them are the symptoms. And we're blaming all these people, but frankly, the systems we've created are like poisoned wells so you can't expect people to act differently than like it's designed for them to act that way and so i think that we're looking sometimes at the wrong things when we're doing this like blame game of humanity which is like what is the system that created this outcome and how can we readdress the system and the framework so it doesn't happen again but we're we're not doing that um just quite yet, or at least not all of us are. And I think that's a part of. I would like to see, you know, the next year that it, that's a bigger part of the conversation. Instead of taking down the founder, let's talk about the system of venture capital. Instead of taking down, you know, uh, the politician, let's talk about the framework of politics. Let's talk. You know, there's a lot of things that create bad behavior. Um, even with the best most ethical people, some people, it's like that's the system will still produce the same result.
0: Exactly. And we have to have humility about ourselves in that sense. Like we are all affected by all kinds of conditioning and incentives. And it's like, it's just delusional to think that, you know, the repetitive problems that we're seeing at scale, you know, that we're not all buying into it somewhere, right? Like we're all participating in creating these super egoistic business models that are highly attractive. Like, you know, I can say all the wonderful things that I'm saying, But do I have an Amazon Prime account? Yes. Yes, I do. Do I order as often as maybe I did during the pandemic? No, no, I don't. But it's just a long way to say, back to the point around non-demonization, but being really curious about, well, where can I use my point of energy, my dollar, my purchase, my voice, my vote, to start shifting at the root level of systems so that we can create different outcomes, right? Like that's, that's uh, it, it almost sounds like cheesy, but nobody wants to focus on the roots it's dirty and messy and in the dark and covered in rocks like nobody wants to look at that but that's the key I, I think the most effective change i mean you see this in natural systems or even in the body are gradual and you know not shocks to the system because the natural reaction is resistance or tension or you know some sort of a fight or a war so you want to you know the the framework at on is how do you change at the most fundamental level at the root change the water, change the soil so that the thing at the end produces the result that you want versus fighting the fruit, not the seed that you've planted. I think a lot of this is what folks struggle with when they're thinking about how do we change corporate systems? How do we change all these ills that the society we live in is creating? It's like looking outside is not really going to solve it. You need to look at the simpler, smaller things that you do in are day Who are you purchasing from? Where does that do really go? Are you using that questions, comments, or compliments, phone number at the bottom of the chocolate bar, and asking simple questions like, who does your certification, and how often do they visit? We have a voice. We have the ability to interact and engage and challenge. So if you're not focusing on the roots, you're not gonna get a different fruit. is ultimately the point.
1: (laughs) Totally, I think it's hard. I mean, I think we all have different inherent tensions that live within us living in this world, you know, you know, as much as I'm uh, not for a patriarchal world, I still deal with, you know, I still get Botox and things like that, that you're like, these are the paradoxes of being human. But I think we all have places where we can start, and I think for all of us, it's an ever-evolving journey. Like for me, I'm constantly questioning where I'm playing into, you know, patriarchy and where I'm not, mm-hmm. and it's. I think it's just that's the that's the tension we live in at this time and being in the world. But I think if we're not questioning, we're not doing anything. And so after you start questioning, you start taking action. But I'm always that's what's you know I'm always iterating in my mind or what are the ways that I'm being paradoxical to the values I claim to live in.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, the paradox of being human or the paradox of change and all these other things, yes, Hershey as an organization or whatever, pick a large chocolate company, indirectly or directly participates in a system of cocoa cultivation that is not planet affirming or people affirming, indirectly. Yes, the money that they spend through all of these different exporters, from Mondelez, pick any brand. But the individuals at these organizations, fundamentally, you know, way that, the way that the incentives have been aligned in their business, it's very difficult for them to do something different. It's not that the intent of these organizations is to do harm. It's that the design of a larger commodity system optimizes for that result. And, you know, for me, when I connected with these larger executives in these spaces around what it is that we're doing, I have found that nine times out of 10, they're very enthusiastic about applying, learning, doing, changing, and seeing where they can adjust the systems that they actually have leverage in. But if I were to approach these people or these organizations, assuming that they were the bad guy and that they're the reason everything, like we demonize a counterparty, the likelihood that they're going to be a partner in change is like basically zero. And I think we, we can't get too caught up in the system because the system is just people like you and me every day. And that's, that's the level of connection that I'm most excited and curious about, and that's where I like to play. Is that that direct exchange between you and me, or me and a farmer, or the farmer and the driver? That's really where all change happens.
1: No, it's not. It's not them or us. And I think you're exactly right. Like we're all connected. We're all the same. So how do we meet at the human level amidst you know uh, the problems we need to fix? Sure. How have you applied this philosophy to fundraising? <laughs> Fundraising.
0: Listen, I, I love that question. Um, you know, people say that all money is green, but I don't agree with that. Um, so I think the first thing I would say, in terms of how I apply this philosophy, is you know, there's just there's energy that's aligned, and then there's energy that's aligned to something else. And when you're trying to create something, you need to be very selective about what inputs are going into what you're growing. So I think one of the things that in our fundraising process was really important is that we chose investors or invited investors to this opportunity that were in it for the long term. That was super key. The venture model's basically inherently incompatible with systems change. That's like a bold statement, but I, I mean, in some ways- You're on the right it's, it's podcast. You're, the on, you're on the right podcast. <laughs> am, I, am I on the right podcast? I'm sorry, like no. VC in general, is just the way the incentives are designed there is just completely goofy but its ultimate purpose I think is, it's like an interesting saying because venture capitalists with an ethical alignment are exactly the sorts of people that could like power invest in a super radical infrastructure change and like make transitions happen really quickly if they had that alignment, but most of them don't. Like It's like sell a widget, build a widget, pretend the widget yeah. has value, dump a lack of value on the market and here we are. So I think from the beginning, you know, The speed of growth is something that I think every entrepreneur should temper. It took us four years to bring a chocolate bar to market. We could have done it much sooner, but we wouldn't have done it as thoroughly. We wouldn't have done it with the soil testing. We wouldn't have done it with the validated profit share. We wouldn't have done it with all the contracts that we have. We wouldn't have done it with the refinery built in the free zone. We could have done it in the same exploitative way that everybody else does it and made a bunch of margin and a bunch of money really early and raised at a super high valuation. But having the discipline to go slowly with less, to grow well, later was really like key in how we approached our raises so you know you know we raised like 150k at first obviously we bootstrapped it a lot ourselves then another 250 and then six months later 500k you know at no point was there a huge slushy bucket of cash for us to play with it was very much i think in some ways how nature works you get exactly what you need at the time you need it, and then you use that energy and then you get a bit more um and it was a stressful process, obviously, but I'm glad that we're here and we're healthy. And we said no to a lot of people. And a lot of people said no to us too, and that's OK. No is as good as yes, in my
1: mind. It's an easy litmus test when you're building from alignment and mission to know who's with you and who's not. And I think what I admire about your fundraising capabilities, because as we mentioned earlier in the intro, she's the only woman of color to raise over a million dollars of capital more than once not an easy feat, and so many odds were stacked against you. But I think what you embody, which is authentic, you know, like you're an authentic person looking for something authentic, so you're attracting that to you. What I admire about what you do is you also aren't trying to make yourself something you're not, which in the process of raising money, sometimes we make concessions to get the capital, and you're very clear that this is what you're building, this is who you are, and either you're on the page and with the vision or you're not. And I think that's something that's easily forgotten
0: in the process of raising capital. Definitely. I actually think that that, I think you have to have a very clear code of what you will allow and what you won't allow. Not everything is for everyone and that's fine. I mean, again, back in the natural world, like not all nutrients feeds all things, you know, the right amount of water for a cactus is not the same for, you know, an oak tree or whatever that may be. So you need to be comfortable that You're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And that, that, A no, as I said earlier, is just as good as a yes because it continues to move you closer to what will suit you and what you suit. Um, So you know, as it relates to fundraising as a woman of color, um, you know, the way that I see it is, I have a perspective on problem solutions and opportunities that are really invisible to most financial decision makers. And also uh, a community of opportunity that they're also not very connected to. So when I walk into these rooms, I'm not walking in the room with a chip on my shoulder that they're gonna likely say no to me. It's like, I've got something awesome that I know for a fact you never thought about. And, you know, do you wanna build this with me? Is this exciting to you? And here's all the ways that it's gonna work. And, you know, here's how this method of leadership is gonna yield these really exciting results. And for folks that are aligned, to that sort of opportunity creation, it's, we're we're transacting beyond these like very superficial things like race and gender. We're transacting on values. And uh, the other thing I would say is you have to want what you want and you have to want what comes of it. So, and I think that's something that people are very uncomfortable accepting. So if I want $5 million, making up the number from super long-term ethical investors i have to also want the fact that it's likely going to take me much longer to get those people on board because they tend to have a longer diligence process you know i have to want the fact that it's not going to be instant if i want this outcome and be adherent to that you understand that you can't just want the one side of the desire you have to want the company's materialization of that desire and i think a lot of folks get impatient for the results and take shortcuts to just get whatever input and then they try to like fix it on the back end. And I, I don't think that really works. So I, I, I guess I, I was very comfortable struggling for a while as it to resource constraints at Inaru, um, because the purity of the energy that's required for a business like this is like not something I'm willing to compromise on. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that.
1: I just love, I obviously am a fan. I'm obviously a fan of the business model. I love everything you're doing. I've like complimented you the whole way through. <laughs> oh, but I'm just really inspired. I'm really inspired by what you're doing. I don't, I mean, so many founders and the way that you think about business and leadership is just very much in alignment with how I see the world. But I think we just need more of it. And so I'm just appreciative that you are doing it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's been so fun to like know you and witness it. Um, before we wrap up, we're going to jump Thank into you. our rapid fire section. So I, have Yay. Five questions. I love rapid fire. Let's see how I can dance with you. I'm ready. Okay. What would you tell your 20 year old self?
0: What would I tell my 20 year old self? Oh, that's really go rapid fire. Um, dance more.
1: Oh, I love that. What is the last book you read?
0: The last book I read, um, the author escapes me. Oh, it was authentic happiness, um, by some amazing PhD. I'll pull that up for you, but that's what I was reading. What are you struggling with right now? What am I struggling with right now? Oh. Hmm. Oh, I'll be I'll be honest about this. Um probably balancing like family and work. Uh, I don't I don't have children or anything, but my actual like blood relatives. I work I work with my sister. My father's closely connected to the business. My mother is obviously my mother and you know, balancing the demands of being a daughter with aging relatives and, you know, trying to balance how much time I spend on the materialization of this dream, how much time I spend on like the realization of myself and how much time I spend creating healthy interactions with my family. It's not easy. So I think the biggest challenge is being present in the way that I want to be through all the things that matter and not beating myself up when I don't get the balance right all the time. That's probably what I'm struggling with. What is bringing you joy right now? Uh, what is bringing me joy right now is I've made a bunch of new friends in Los Angeles, new amongst them, and it's been really wonderful to connect with people at a level of like creativity and socialization and laughing and just playing, and that's been wonderful. Like making new connections that are not related to anything in particular, and sometimes are, and just enjoying like the company of good humans.
1: Well, LA is very happy you're here, so
0: uh, I'm happy to be in
1: LA. So yes. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: The best piece of advice I've ever received? Wow. Um, it was Miss Nelson, my third grade talented and gifted teacher. She said, Janet, you can do anything. The thing you have to focus on is time management. And I really didn't get it when she told it to me. She was like, this is your Achilles heel, time management. And I internalize that, and I manage time better than anybody else. I feel like I'm timeless. So thank you, Ms. Nelson. Thank you,
1: Ms. Nelson. Also, thank you, Ms. Nelson, for seeing me, believing me, and telling me I can do anything. That's a good teacher.
0: Yes. She is amazing.
1: And now for the takeaways of this week's episode. There are simple, elegant solutions available to us to create better business models. Janet has proven that with Inaru, that all we have to do is take the time and we can find really, really simple solutions to grand problems. If you are outsourcing responsibility, that is not taking responsibility. I love this one, yes, that part. I think too many of us try and offload our responsibility onto others when it's ours to bear. What if our corporate courage looked more like long-term thinking? This is a great idea, that we have to be willing to take short-term losses to improve the health of our company and for the betterment of humanity. What if our companies operated more like living organisms? We're so used to building things in the way that they have been built in the past, And it's exciting to think about different ways of building companies. And Janet gives us one idea, to think about building it as in nature, a centropic company, like living organisms. Misaligned incentives can bring out the worst in a system. We heard this in last week's episode from Eduardo. There is no bigger boulder to push up the hill than misalignment. And here that is being echoed again with Janet. Be selective with your energy. We have to be very particular about where we put it who we give it to. We only have so much energy to give. Transact with your values. Yes. When we transact with our values, it eliminates a lot of friction in our lives. I cannot exclamation point this one more. Thank you so much for, I know you're a travel to take the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just like, this is, this is the best. It's like what you're doing is so cool.
0: Thank you so much. And I love what you're doing. I'm Always happy to share and connect and I'm really glad you're passionate about Centropic Agriculture. Oh my god, I've to come down to the, the, the DR. My whole thing- next meeting, you have to be in the DR. Done. Absolutely.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. If you could take some time to subscribe not only to our audio channel which you can find anywhere that podcasts can be found but also our youtube with all of our video episodes if you could subscribe rate and review it would make such a huge difference to us i want to give a big big thank you to parentheses produced wine designs media young spielberg and young scorp consulting this really couldn't happen without any of them this really is the little pod that could thank you guys so much and see you next week